My guest today is Brandon Taylor, whose new book, The Late Americans, is a stark retooling of the campus novel for the 21st century. Taking a university town in Iowa as his canvas, Taylor depicts the lives of a loose group of friends and associates, Seamus, Fyodor, Ivan, Noah and Fatima, students of writing and dance, as time barrels them towards the end of their studies and the harsh realities of the so-called real world beyond. The novel lives in Taylor's delicate and perceptive handling of the complicated interplay of money, class, race, art and sex, the bonds each of these can form between us and the divides they create. It's a book rich in ideas and reflections about contemporary life, contemporary America in particular, but these would be all for nothing without the meticulously wrought human comedy in all its beauty and ugliness at its core. Brandon Taylor, welcome to Shakespeare and Company. Thank you for having me. I guess where I'd like to begin is a little bit with a kind of confession of ignorance about the setting of your book, of <laughs> Iowa. So I know two things about Iowa. We're recording in the week that Donald Trump just romped home in the uh, Iowa caucus for the Republican nomination. And the other thing I know about Iowa is about its famous writer's workshop. So for our listeners who may or may not be as ignorant as me, would you tell us a little bit about why you decided to set this novel in Iowa as opposed to, for example, New York? Sure. Iowa is a part of what we call the Midwestern United States. During a period of time in American history, it was a kind of frontier. Often when you think of Little House on the Prairie or those stories of the frontiers, men and women, you're thinking about places like Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, things like that. And so it is a Midwestern state, an incredibly rural state, and a state that is quite agricultural and agrarian still, even in the 21st century. And as far as why I chose it as the setting, I was living in Iowa City, attending the aforementioned Iowa Writers Workshop. And I found it to be a strikingly different place than Madison, Wisconsin, which is also part of the Midwest where I had lived before. Madison is cosmopolitan compared to Iowa City. Iowa City is a much smaller town. It's a much smaller community. And truly, there the university is everything. And so in, I feel like the next closest analogy would be to liken it to an industrial town or a town where everybody works for one company, right. except in this case, the company is often the university. And so it combines both the usual politics and difficulties of being a small town, like quite small. There's not a ton of money. There's not a ton of opportunities with also the, the strangeness of being the home of one of America's major universities, the University of Iowa. And so those two things together make it this incredible crucible. And because it's a university town, very many different kinds of people blow through there. And so you have these kind of working class Iowans coming into contact with an incredibly diverse population of people, which gives it a kind of its own bit of cosmopolitan culture and air to it. Um, and so I think all those things make it uh, really fascinating, contradictory, but like deeply fascinating. I think we'll, we'll, we'll come on to this more specifically a bit later, but I suppose my, my point of reference as a British person was the kind of way the universities exist in places like Oxford or Cambridge, where they talk about the town and the gown, these kind of this separation between the students and the, and the town folk, the, the obviously Oxford or Cambridge natives, so to speak. Is that sort of distinction very marked in Iowa? Because what if, from the, the, the knowledge I gained from reading The Late Americans, it seems there does seem to be perhaps more of a crossover than we might expect. Although I did also wonder, um, a lot of your um, protagonists are gay men, and I wondered if maybe that was an overlapping community which allowed more of a, a sort of, let's say, a general overlap between the town and the gown 
than might be the case otherwise. In my first novel, Real Life, which takes place in Madison, Wisconsin, there is this really strict demarcation, particularly felt by, I think, the graduate students of Madison, Wisconsin, who feel very much like we we are not a part of this place. It has nothing to do with us. Because in Madison, Wisconsin, there's a great, there's just more happening. That's where the state capital is. It's where there are a lot of really important banks and businesses Different. So there are many, there are a lot of different ways to be a kind of young professional in Madison. And so there is this really sharp divide. <laughs> Whereas in Iowa City, just because the class situation there is so much different, really, there's not, if you're in that town, if you're in Iowa, the odds are that you are a college student. And in, in so much so that in the summer, the entire town basically shuts down and the grocery stores change all their hours. And so there's this retooling of the very infrastructure of the city p- dependent upon the number of students who are in town. And so there is, I think, like less of less of a strict divide because there's just... And I do think that you raise an interesting point about being queer in such a place because, yeah, very often that when you're a queer person in a small town and you're looking for a community, there are only going to be so many of you among your fellow students. And so you do naturally have a point of affinity with these people who are in the sort of towny class of, of people. And so there is this kind of, like when you download a dating app in Iowa City, like you do see your fellow students, sometimes some professors, and then you'll see like guys who work at the gas station or who work for the lighting co-op or who do whatever. And there's like a, a sort of ready-made portal into those worlds. And so with this book, it felt crucial to, I don't know, make that divide seem more porous because in Iowa City, it did feel more porous to me. It felt like I was constantly, I could never take for granted that the person I was talking to was going to be like a university person. <laughs> like there, there, the odds of encountering someone who just had a job and lived there were, were pretty high. Whereas in, in Madison, I could count on one hand the number of non-university people I spoke to in five years there. Like it just didn't happen. So the book opens with, with Seamus. And Seamus is in a uh, poetry writing workshop. Now, I remember a few years ago interviewing Rachel Cusk about the trilogy. And we talked about the fact that the, a lot of the, act, particularly, and I think it's in Kudos, a lot of the action takes place at literary events. And obviously it was strange talking to somebody who's written about that at a literary event. And she just said that, she said, oh yeah, I'm on dangerous ground here. Now, I know that you're a creative writing professor and you open your book with a very stark portrayal of a creative writing workshop. Did you feel on slightly dangerous ground from a kind of sort of professional perspective in a way of, let's say, lifting the veil on a certain way these workshops might proceed? And when I wrote it, no, because when I wrote it, I was still an Mm. MFA student and and I had no plans to become a creative writing professor. And so I was mostly just trying to write about it in such a way that that would let me express some of my own frustrations and thoughts about the creative writing workshop as like a model for instruction. But where I did feel like I was on dangerous ground is that I knew that I would be taking those pages into workshop. I knew right. that I would be workshopping right. them. <laughs> and so I, there, are, there are questions I had while drafting it, thinking, if I write it this way... Will the fiction writers nitpick this to death? Will they just get in there and do what they've been doing to me this entire time, which is to add a se- ask a series of incredibly petty, nonsensical questions and not really engage the work? And thinking that, I thought, okay, I should probably then make them poets. Because if I make them <laughs> poets, the fiction writers have no idea 
what the poets are doing. We don't we we had no earthly concept of what a poetry workshop was like. And so I was like, they don't know. So they they, they can't nitpick it. Um, and so I can take the behaviors that I observe in my fellow fiction writers and recast them as poets and force them to see the behavior anew and from a distance. Um, and when I did workshop those pages, my teacher said, I feel that I cannot comment upon this excerpt without falling into its rhetorical trap because you have so accurately parodied the sort of pablum that teachers say. And so I don't know how to talk about it without um, sort of validating its arguments. And I was like, yes, correct. Um, So I I did feel a little meta in that way. But since it has come out, I I am now a creative writing professor and it is interesting watching people interact with, with the novel. And, but I feel great because, you know, my boss and the creative writing program where I teach, Deborah Landau, she said that it was really great and really harrowing and she really enjoyed the depiction. So I feel like my uh, employment prospects are safe that I have not yet done the deed. But yeah, no, I wrote it when I was still a student and it does, when I read it back over now, it definitely does have the feel of having been written by uh, a workshop refugee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess another way in which it might, those scenes might be described as being on a little bit sort of dangerous ground is the what might be considered their kind of the challenge they take to a certain ideological reading of poetry, or equally we could say of fiction, which I've not taught those kind of creative writing workshops. But I have a sense that sort of perhaps questions of um, identity, questions of politics, not necessarily superseded writing, but have certainly become a big part of the discussion, yeah. as it seems to be in, in your book. How did you feel as a black man, as a gay man, that you had a certain sort of, not exactly protection from eventual kind of criticism about taking this kind of, taking this kind of approach to task? Yeah, I felt, I think when I was writing it, I felt a lot of glee and delight mm-hmm. at taking on what felt to me like received pieties. And taking this ideology, which it felt like an ideology that was being forced upon me and being told that it was for my own benefit that we have this identitarian, identity-centric, flat reading style of art. And they're like, that's good for people like you. Like, that's what you want. And, and I kept thinking, like, no, that's not what I want at all. And so it was my way of... And so at first, that's all I felt was a real pleasure and delight in it. And then as it became time for the book to be published... My my editor started to have conversations with me about Seamus and about how difficult he was and how hard of a character he was and how he would be how he might be better served by not being in the book and, and stuff like that. And all of those concerns to me felt a sort of desire to protect me from backlash because and I felt that those conversations were also proof that he needed to be in the book. This idea that you know, that there's an ide- ideology out there that if we like don't submit to it, it will ruin our careers is like an incredible insidious and evil thing. And I don't know why more people don't actually feel terrified by that. Um, so I, yeah, I felt that it was important to write him and to, to show, the, yeah, the, these seemingly progressive ideas are actually like deeply strange when we demand that everyone fall in line with them. And in fact, the the sort of, value that they purport to bring is actually just a, a flattening of li- of literary and artistic rhetoric. <laughs> and that's not good. Um, but at the same time, Seamus is, of course, very heightened and very silly. And he's very mischievous. And he's 
loud and silly and wrong, but I think also some of what he says does have a, a degree of truth to it. And he's massively conflicted as well because yeah. he's in that sort of state of passing judgment to an extent on the the context of um, of the writing workshop and the work of others, and yet at the same time completely incapable, at least for a good part of the book, of writing of writing anything himself. Yeah, he is utterly blocked and he doesn't know how to get out of it. And part of that blockage is because he lacks confidence because every time he has written and has put something up for a workshop, he has felt really misunderstood or he's had motives ascribed to him that he doesn't actually have. And he feels that to express himself in the way that feels natural to him is just going to get him accused of putting on or pretending to be interested in things because it's capital A art. And so he just doesn't have confidence and he doesn't have faith in his own ideas. And yeah, he just feels stuck and trapped. And that is a position that I myself <laughs> relate to very much. I think we all feel sometimes this unbearable tension between our the things that we want to express in the way that feels most natural to us and what the world expects from us. And sometimes being overly aware of what we think the world expects from us can be the most inhibiting thing of all. Um, and I think one of the challenges of the book was trying to dramatize that, a person who was blocked artistically. And another, and another thing that Seamus, I think, has difficulty with as well is this expression of, I guess, the way that money and wealth class manifests itself in this kind of environment as well. And I guess where, I guess, particularly money, class, and race are these sort of three circles which sort of overlap in different ways. And you you make it very hard, in a sense, for readers to immediately pigeonhole one character as more or less privileged than another. So, you know, Seamus, perhaps people might say, well, you're speaking from a position of privilege as a white man, which clearly he is. And yet at the same time, he's one of the few students in his class who is actually obliged to work um, to be there. Was it difficult from a sort of, I guess, craft point of view to balance, let's say, those different kind of overlapping plates? If you like? Yeah, I think one of the things that, so with this book, I had a lot of doubts in writing it that were like really challenging to, to get through. But one of the things that saved this book was realizing that Seamus needed a job. I had written him as this like very cranky, like he's going to say that he's a reactionary guy. And I kept thinking like, okay, he has all these ideas about what real art is, but I'm not really understanding what his deal is. And the minute I gave him a job and the minute I put him into contact with people who were not in this program, I started to understand this whole other dimension to how he was interacting with them, right? And it's not to say that he's like a sweetheart outside of the place, but that once he's outside of that milieu and he's like working, he does seem to be more himself and like he's more... He's closer to himself and like closer to the values that like truly matter to him. And you start to see, oh, this is somebody who has been slightly deranged by his proximity to like actual privilege. Uh, he went to a very elite undergraduate and now he's in this very elite program surrounded by people who don't have to work, who have fellowships or trust funds. And so it is, it is, class is such an incredibly important dynamic. And then of course, class complicates many of the interracial relationships in the book and we I feel like in American media, we have this idea of, oh, yeah, there's the really clueless, privileged white boyfriend and the the sort of like hardworking, earnest, like black character. I feel somehow in the media of the 2010s, we have trained audiences 
that when they see a black character that is like the the capital G good character who you can side with no matter what, who has it like figured out. And I think like that is not always the case. Like I have black friends who are equally clueless about class because they're super rich and they have these working class like white partners who are like, you don't get it. And so it was actually fun, but a little difficult to traumatize those conflicts in the book, like in the book, there's a very wealthy young black man who was raised by white people and he has a, a white partner and the white partner or his family has no money and he's, you don't get it. And then the black boyfriend who's incredibly well, very wealthy is like, no, you don't get it. Like race is so important. Like you don't understand. <laughs> and the white boyfriend is like, like, you were raised by white people. Like you, we, we are the same in many ways. And, and I feel like from a craft perspective, what I'm trying to do there is to find the complexity, like to, to find like truly the honest, the honesty about it, which is that both of those people are more or less privileged in different ways at the same time. And how does that impact their ability to understand each other? And also, what does it look like in a society that has in some sense like chosen to enshrine like a victimhood status of certain groups of the population and how that plays out? in interpersonal dynamics and to bring a degree of humor hopefully to it as well and to let these characters say and do things that implicate them and that mirror i'm sure like conversations that we've all seen go down <laughs> between couples who come from different class backgrounds <laughs> it's sometimes really funny to watch them mutually accuse each other of not understanding when it's yeah you both don't get something very important here <laughs> yeah. it's funny because again i guess coming from a, a british perspective where we have a very particular idea of class and very stratified and I guess very peculiar to the British context. I think I always had in mind that there was not exactly that the situation was a little bit more clear cut in the US, but that there was this kind of, let's say, a harder link between wealth and class in a way. And one thing I found fascinating about reading The Late Americans was this sense of, oh, actually, it's equally complex, if not more complex than the British system, for example, uh, between you have questions of race, obviously, which are different in Britain and in the US. And then you have people who were for, from wealthy back, raised wealthy, but then lost their money. And then you compare to people who were raised poor and then gained, earned money and stuff like that. And it just felt like an incredibly intricate web of, again, different privileges and different perspectives to manage. Oh, yes. Oh, one of my favorite things in the world is when I see in the morning when I wake up and I see like a British person like tweeting something about class in a way that like does not specify that they're British. And I just know the Americans are going to read that tweet and be incensed and say something crazy. Because Americans, truly, I don't think that Americans and Brits should ever talk about class together because it just it always leads to confusion. So, for example, I saw a British person in publishing say, oh, can you believe that someone said that you can transcend class? Can you believe that? And of course, all the Americans were like, well, yes, that is our, that is, we call that the American dream. And in fact, we live our lives such that we will one day transcend class and not be shaped by it in exactly this way. And American class is incredibly fungible. And also at the same time, the mutable, we have this illusion that it is fungible and changeable. Whereas the Brits, it's, 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 you are dyed in the wool, like you are born into a station, and that is the station with all of its sort of ensuing complexities. And so, yeah, I, one of my favorite things, like watching Brits and Americans talk past each other with increasing rage about class. And as far as the class in the book, yeah, it is 
I feel like part of the complexity of class in America is that it's our way of, very often it is our way of talking about race without talking about race. Or it's our way of, very often it's a way that like white people use to obfuscate race. And so we have, for example, in our politics, many people on the right will say, oh, it's not about race. Like we need to stop talking about race and we need to start supporting the working class and the middle class. And if you look at the class breakdown in America, like the working class is actually like, like black people are overrepresented. And when people talk about the poor in a virtuous way, they mean the white poor. And when they talk about poor in a sort of denigrating, degrading way, like laziness, like a sort of inability to make do with the resources we're given, when we talk about welfare in a denigrating way, we are talking exclusively about the racialized poor. And so we often use these economic categories in America as a way of talking about and signaling race without saying Black, without saying... And it's also used as a way to blunt the importance of race in America. Um, and when everyone knows it, like the situation on the ground is simply that like race and class in America are inextricable because we use laws to like force groups of like racial groups into certain social strata. <laughs> like it's on purpose. But we're not allowed to talk about race anymore for re a whole host of reasons. And so when it came to write this book, I was like, I have a lot of complicated feelings about class and race, particularly among the, the graduate student set. Because when I went to graduate school, I was being lectured by white people whose family owned entire chains of grocery stores about the importance of listening to poor people and the working poor. And mind you, I came from a, a farm in rural Alabama, and I was the only literate person in my immediate family. And I'm being lectured by people whose fathers drove Lexuses about how my politics were bad because I wasn't a leftist. And I thought, okay, sorry, I wasn't reading Marx. I was too busy, like, chopping wood for the winter. I'm sorry. And I think, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that, the ways in which, like, our politics are largely just idioms and phrases we say as if casting some magic spell to make people buy our books. Like, it, it's so deeply silly to me. Well, that was connected what I was going to ask too. Next, actually, is this idea of when you do have a lot, a lot of ideas, a lot of thoughts, a lot of reflections on the, on the subject of class and race and in society generally, how, as a novelist, do you avoid that becoming a... your characters becoming ciphers for those views? Because when we're reading the late Americans, we the peop, the characters on the page feel very real and very rounded. Is there and obviously without naming any names, is this like you? Do you look for examples of people you've known as ways to, to shape your characters and to stop them just being representatives of a particular class or a particular race? I think for me, it begins with. Well, I think we were talking about Zola before we we started rolling, but. I think Zola was actually very illustrative of this because in the Rugo Makkar, of course, like Zola's, Zola's naturalism is like determinist at bottom. And I think that a lot of people would hear that and think that is a thing to avoid, the sort of determinism of life, like I'm not interested. But I actually find that really freeing that like a person can be so shaped by their childhood, by their class, by their family, that they're, in one way they are a kind of cipher for the entire sort of set of inputs that, that caused them to exist. And then working from that, thinking about ways that we kind of surprise and diverge from those all those qubits that get input, the sort of randomness of life. And for me, the novel is this place to put 
characters and characters' ideologies like to the test. Sure, I think I know what a sort of grad student Marxist is, but what happens when I have them work in a hospice kitchen? What happens when I have them encounter some guy from the local town in the woods? What happens when you try to write a poem and can't? Like, what are the ways that your beliefs get in the way? What are the sort of just dumb human thoughts they think on a daily basis? And that's what I'm always looking for is the the ways where just like life (laughs) muddies the picture a bit. And yeah, I, I never try to let the characters become totalized by their ideas, but to constantly be putting them in situations that provoke human responses from them and attending to those responses and asking better and better questions of the characters that that take them out of the realm where they can very comfortably hold forth. It's hard to hold forth when you've got to work a job to feed yourself. It's hard to hold forth on the sort of working class consciousness when you've got to do 14 hours in a meatpacking plant or when you've got a, when you're a mathematician who's got to grade a bunch of, when you're an adjunct who has to grade a bunch of student papers, or when you've got to make porn to send money to your parents back home. Those everyday situations interrupt those really elegant, beautiful speeches that characterize some bits of the law. And, and also Tolstoy and, and all my favorite novelists. And so I, whenever I start to feel the the consciousness of the character getting ready to have a really beautiful speech, that's when I let life intervene. And so then their politics, their ideas, all that stuff that's inside of them has to be expressed indirectly. It has to be expressed and contradicted by what is required of that character in that moment. In the same way that I am a person who has ideas, and, and if I were in a situation where I could hold forth very elegantly about those ideas, I would probably make a very articulate expression of my thoughts. But when I'm like running to the subway because I'm going to be later, like I'm not able to. And so then I find that is what a novel needs is the sort of harried consciousness of a thought in motion and always looking for places where the character can seemingly contradict themselves. It's all about contrast, I think. And it's interesting that idea of sort of life intervening because there's a scene, if I remember rightly, it's between Fatima, who's one of the dance students in Cheney, who's another of a minor character and quite a quite an unpleasant <laughs> And there's this moment where he says to her, oh, your life, your job, whatever, that's not real. This work we're creating, this is real. And it's, I think it puts the, the reader, particularly I think of the reader as, as an artist of one sort or another, in an un, quite an uncomfortable position because that's what you want an artist to think. And that's probably what artists do think. But when you're confronted with someone saying that to a woman who you know has this very complicated, very full, very difficult life and works in order to allow her to pursue this, it feels so empty and so wrong in some way. <laughs> yeah. And, and also in that context, he's weaponizing that, oh. right? Like he's weaponizing that rhetoric to diminish what she does outside of the program because that makes him feel icky, right? And so then there's this whole other layer of the sort of like dramatic context there. And it's true. I think many people, many people, they love to be like, no, your real work is like the art. Like that is the thing that you are focused on. And there's another group of people who are like, no, there's your day job that you've got to do. And then there's like your art and your art is like your side hustle until it becomes your main thing. And this, the seeming dichotomy between the two things. And for me, I've always felt like, wow, that's a bit of a silly idea. That's work. This is work that over there is work. It's all work. We're all working. And I think what speaks to this desire in our culture, which I believe that this comes from capitalism, co-opting certain ideas from 
the sacred and the profane, but this hierarchy of work that is worthy and this desire to anoint certain classes of work and, and labor over others. And when you want to live in a society where the church is art, then the highest calling is that of the artist. And it's not as if that is not the case, but that when we say that, are we also saying that the work of people who lay bricks, that is... And, and for me, someone who grew up writing little poems in a notebook in the woods and then putting it down to help my grandpa reload the gasoline and the chainsaw and then hauling wood back, to me, all of that work has always been intermingled. It's always been inextricable. And I, it never occurred to me that there was like real work and not real work until I got to science graduate school and I would write little stories and also pipette for 12 hours a day and, and do experiments. And people would say, like, the science is your real work. That's the real priority. And it was like this being expected to prioritize like one half of my life over the other one. In fact, the they were the same to me. They they equally meant something to me. And I was just, man, I don't know that I buy into that. Like, it feels a bit silly. But of course, when you're writing about a community where those kinds of hierarchies <laughs> exist, like graduate students love a hierarchy. Artists love a hierarchy. And so I thought, this is my opportunity to show how absurd and silly it is to say to a person who's working a job to be able to afford to be an artist in this very limited context that her work in that cafe is not real. And as though, and then as though you need to remind her that the dance is the thing that matters. It's a bit, it's a bit silly. Um, and what it adds to as well is that sort of idea of the the mystification of the artist, and not just the hierarchy, but also the sort of aristocracy of art. And as I forget which of your characters it is now who does, does talk about this, it puts across this idea that actually maybe it's not such a bad thing if not everybody has access. Yes. To the, <laughs> to the artistic life. And I think we both work in the book world in different ways. And it's something, an, an attitude which I've come across, not explicitly expressed, but that is very clear that like this idea of, oh, the more we, we mystify the practice, the more we make it not work and into something else, then the easier it is to stop people yeah. penetrating that world. Totally. Yeah, I think somebody, and I think it's the, yeah, it's one of the chapters of someone, we need to bring back gatekeeping. And that is an idea that I am sympathetic to in one regard. Like there's a lot of really bad television right now. And I think democracy, so good for the soul, maybe bad for art. Did we need to democratize all art in exactly this way? But then there's a part of me that's everybody should be able to make art. I love that. I don't have to engage the stuff I don't want to see. You know, that, that that's like a curatorial problem more than anything else. And yeah, that also felt important to me. There were all these people who were like, why do we, and I saw this more often in science, I must say, than I did in the art world, but maybe the art world, they were being much more discreet about it. But in science, there was a lot of talk about a pipeline of sufficiently qualified students, mostly meaning where are all of the qualified Black students? Is that why we don't have any in this program? And who's a good fit for this path of academia? Oh, and, all these euphemisms. Eh? And, and it does feel to me in some ways that like science and STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, that is one of, not the last, but like one of the few places where there is a kind of more or less like gatekeeping is the goal <laughs> agenda. And you also see it with med schools and law schools. And that's why any talk of diversifying the applicant pool is repackaged as, oh, we're going to decrease our quality. Because the problem must simply be that there's not sufficient quality of these kinds of applicants, not that there are other sort of class-centered gatekeeping mechanisms. Or 
it's incredibly silly to me. Um, but also, it's also fun to parody it a bit, to put those words in a character's mouth and see what shakes out. Uh-huh. In, on, the, on the subject of art, like we, you spoke earlier about how you decided to make it a poetry workshop rather than a fiction writing workshop. And obviously the other type of artists, as we've spoken about, are dancers. Now, I once taught a, a workshop and, uh, an, on narrative with a group of dancers. And having also done some some work with with young writers, and the thing that really struck me was how different writers and dancers are in the way that they just manifest themselves in the world, the way that they exist in, in this case, we were in a classroom, um, which is not really the natural habitat for dancers <laughs> at all. Um, but I'm just curious to know about how you, in a sense, thought yourself into the mind and practice of a dancer. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by dancers because their body is their tool, it's their instrument, it's their means of expression. And movement is one of those things that feels somewhat like primally human. And I imagine that dance was one of our first narrative forms as like a species. And I find it really beautiful and really interesting. And so when it came time to to write the dancers, I'm not a dancer, but I grew up in a very athletic family. I grew up with a bunch of cousins who played football and basketball. And so I was very much acquainted with the physical discipline of it and the brutality of the standards. And though there are like six boys who have the same body type, which of them is going to get to be the quarterback or the mm. running back or the, oh, or the whoever. Yeah, yeah. And the sort of just for some athletes, they're always going to be the second best option. And so they spend their entire career waiting for an opportunity that is just frankly never going to come. Right. Mm. And that is just like the brutality of it yeah. is like, if they were like a half inch taller, like, a half second faster than that would mean all the difference in the world, right? And it is these like quite tiny margins. And as I began to research dance, I realized that, oh, it's like the same. <laughs> it's very much the same world, that sort of brutal bodily hierarchy. And you can only have the feet you're born with. You can only have the flexibility. You can get better, but there's a certain physical limit. And the ways that your physical dimensions, when coupled with an incredibly violent body fascism, <laughs> Uh, that is present in the world of classical and non-classical dance. It was very familiar to me from my cousins and also growing up and going through that myself, having my own body constantly evaluated. And at one point I was like in a sufficient height qua trial that made me of interest to like football scouts. And they were just waiting to see if my body changed just enough that would make me a useful body for sports. And I was like, yeah, it's like that with dancers, they're always scouting. And I knew what, of course, like vicious artistic academic programs were like. And so then it was just a way of imagining myself into the individual characters, giving each their own life situation and setting them about dramatically. But the the sort of conditions of their lives, I think it, it was just a matter of looking for that analogy to something I could relate to and understand. And like, really, it was like the body, it was the physical discipline, it was the brutality of uh, the the standards. Mm-hmm. And I guess also the, um, particularly when we compare them to, for example, your writer characters, is that there's a shelf life to dancers as well. Like they can, they, they as a, particularly as performing dancers, they have a career which is like sports people. It's going to last a, a decade, two, if you're lucky. Yeah. And at, at a certain level. And, and I, I do think that one of the things that's been really beautiful over the last five or so years, especially, is that landscape has changed a bit. Um that dancers are having longer careers because we're rethinking what a performing career for a dancer can look like. 
Um, and so they're being able to dance longer in different forms. We're deprivileging like the very elite classical and we're looking for different kinds of opportunities for dancers. And those are still few and far between, but increasing every day. But for the characters in this book, they're young and so everything feels so heightened. I don't get a solo ship like next year. I've got maybe I've got maybe five or six more good years to really bloom to the maximum of my potential and have two years as like a primary or a principal. And then it's done. Like they, they are like keenly aware of of how limited the opportunities are. And the they often like quite savage price they must pay for them right and you're praying that other guy twists his knee three days in so that you can get called up and i found that like really messed up but also as an artist very interesting and one thing that really heightens the that feeling as well for all of your characters who but the students anyway at least is there's this, this strange sense in the novel of both kind of their lives in this sort of state of inertia and the fact that there's this momentum in that they are just heading towards the end of their time at university. So there is going to be a time when they will have to decide as dancers whether that's what they want to pursue or as some of the characters are considering trying other things. Similarly, it's less articulated in the book, but similar for the writers and the poets, particularly even more so than novelists, like poets who live off of... <laughs> Of the royalties from their books. Yeah, and like fellowships. They live yeah. on fellowships and residencies. It's brutal out there. Yeah, yeah. Was that a difficult balance to strike between those two feelings of this kind of lack of change and this kind of inertia and this going around in circles and the fact that their lives were rushing forward nonetheless? I don't know. It was that it was a struggle because that was like very familiar to me from my own life as, as an academic who's faced down the end of the program. What am I going to do next? I think for me, the bigger challenge was thinking about how to convey that to the reader, because I think that a lot of people who have not been through the harrowing ordeal of graduate school, for the public, they imagine that grad students are like, oh yeah, and then the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. They imagine that there's this whole narrative arc to your life, that you're going to get a faculty position, you're going to be this or that and the third. And I think this comes from like television and movies or something that have created this idea that Graduate students are like these bright, brilliant, beautiful things who have worked really hard and now they will go on to the faculty position of their dreams. And in fact, the academic job market is cratered. There are no jobs. And, and so for me, it was trying to figure out a way to speak to an audience who does not know what it's like to be, you know, it's hard to motivate yourself to go to class in the morning when you know that in two months, three months, you're not going to have a job or health insurance and the best you can hope for is like adjuncting. That's the best you can do is $10,000 a year for, for what, for three classes. And, and so I think that was the challenge was taking a, a group of people who like don't understand that and showing them like, you don't like, this isn't even me trying to be an artist with this, but this is just me showing you like the, the truth of it, which is that truly you are going in circles. You have a teacher and your teacher's going to tell you, Oh, you're brilliant. You're perfect. You're amazing. You're the most talented I've ever taught. And then the next day you don't have a job. Like you don't have, what is your life outside of this program? Like you have nothing. And it isn't all these beautiful young birds take to the sky. It's no, they fall off a cliff. And maybe some of them learn how to fly as they plunge to their death. But do you say this to your students at the beginning of each year? No, <laughs> That's I, a writing light for you. <laughs> I try to be very honest with my uh -huh. students, actually. I try to be very frank with them. Mm -hmm. And I try to let them know, like you could get an agent. And you could finish a book 
But like that is not finishing the book is not <laughs> you finish it and then it goes out and it doesn't sell. And then you've got to write another one. I, I try to be very honest with him that you need to have a an ironclad stomach for the work and that you need to make sure that you're being motivated by the right things. Because if you're doing this because you think you're going to have a major book deal and that even getting a major book deal, that is going to fix your life. Like it won't like it's, it's what I am most depressed is like after I've signed that contract and I'm just like, oh, my life is over. Nothing will ever be as it once was. That is the end of hope. And yeah, I try to be very honest with them. At the same time, you want to encourage them. But it is true that you're going to spend the next five or so years trying to finish this project. And maybe it goes nowhere and you have to start over. You have to be okay with that. Like that is the thing that you need to build resilience for in yourself is being okay. And so when I'm teaching, I'm not even trying to be super encouraging. I'm just trying to help them build that thing that's going to let them survive if things don't work out. Because that is, you know, it's like, I used to think that it was the most talented writer of the generation who won the Nobel Prize. And what I have come to realize now is actually, no, it's the person who outlives everybody. And so you could be incredibly mediocre. And as long as you outlive every other writer who is more or less 10 or 15 years older than you, you will win a Nobel Prize. Take care of yourself. Eat a good breakfast. Yes. And, and more importantly, have a stomach for the work and for its sundry disappointments. And yeah, I think that is the thing that is like clearest to me. And I think it's been proven many a time in recent years that like, there are a couple of Nobels that nobody saw coming. And it's, was that the most talented person of that generation? No. But did they outlast everybody else? Correct. Uh, <laughs> it is about the endurance more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that we are getting towards the end of the interview. And we haven't actually spoken that much about sex or sexuality, which is quite a large part of the book in one sense. But I also wonder if, for me anyway, reading Late Americans, one of the striking things about it I don't want to say it was how unimportant the sexuality was, but how de-dramatized, how normalized, at least in the context for most of the characters in the book. There is one character who's more from the kind of, let's say, the towny side, maybe the more working class, where it's there's a, the question of the, the character not being out or otherwise. But it was quite striking in a way to find a book populated by so many gay characters in which being gay wasn't yeah. the, a sort of a focal point <laughs> of the story. Yeah, some critics might say that was a major problem oh, really? <laughs> of, uh, of the book. They felt that I was perhaps under-dramatizing the fact of the queerness of my characters. And I was just thinking, of course you feel that way. You came from, you're over 40. Of course you feel, to some degree, the very harrowing prospect of being gay in society. But I think that for not, not every person in my generation feels that way. But for me, writing this book, I found it, deeply boring to imagine what my characters' parents thought about them being gay or like what my characters themselves, like what baggage they had or did not have about being gay. I don't know that many of them had baggage about being gay. And perhaps that is reflection of the milieu that the characters find themselves in. They're mostly surrounded by other queer men or they're in the arts or they, queerness is like such a received fact of life for them that it never occurred to them to have a great deal of baggage. Mm -hmm. And so when I was writing them, it felt important not to over-dramatize that. Mm -hmm. But when I was sharing pages of this as of this book as I wrote it with my teachers, a few of them were like, what does his mom think about him being gay? And I'm like, I don't know that I care. You're not asking what, is, what does his mom think about his job? You haven't asked me that. You haven't asked what his mom thinks about the fact that he drives a rusty truck or, or what his mom thinks about 
that he's dating a vegetarian. You haven't asked me any of those questions, but you expect me to somehow import his mother's feelings about his sexuality into a chapter that has nothing to do with his mother. What do you want from me? You want me to write a teary kitchen table scene? Um, it just is not a part of the dramatic texture of the characters' lives or, or the novel. Um, and so it's not in there because I think that for these characters, it's not a part of the thing that they think about every day. They're more concerned with, can I get a job after I graduate? Can I do this when I graduate? And when they do think about sexuality, it's mostly in the the spirit of, does that guy want a blowjob for me? Or, or boyfriends are so bad, I'd rather just have sex with a bunch of people. Or, oh, my boyfriend is like such a, ooh, oh my God, he's such a handful. He's so annoying. And so I was interested in that. I was interested in what is actively engaged into the sort of dramatic structure of the novel, not what is engaged in the sort of imposed values from ex- some exterior reader. I-, I just didn't think that this book was the place for that. And there are many books that people can read where that is the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was really annoyed when my teachers were like, what is this mom thing? I'm, I don't know. Perhaps you can write that novel about his mother. I don't... Very frustrating. Um, to conclude, uh, I'd like to spend a bit of time just reflecting on the, the title of the book because I found that particularly interesting for different reasons. We're recording this, the, I think, the week that the book has come out in France, which under the title of a similar, but not exactly the same title of Les Derniers Américains, which has a kind of, it's more of a sense of kind of the last and the final, where of course the, the English title has a sense of, it makes you think of late style or perhaps a certain sort of cultural lateness, a kind of um, a decadence. So to begin with, it's not exactly straightforward for the reader to place the story in a particular year. There's, so there's one reference. We've had the name Obama at one moment. There's one reference to Trump. And, but otherwise, so, you know, we, we, we get a sense that it's 2017-ish, maybe. But you said earlier that you started writing this when you were a student. But is, there does seem to be a kind of a decided absence of that kind of external politics from from the book so perhaps as we dive into this title a little bit maybe could you just reflect on why that had to be kept out of the narrative when i have the feeling in our lives over the last six or seven years it's been louder yeah than than ever before very loud so loud yeah so i started the book in 2018 i believe and maybe 2019 and yeah and Originally, I was like, how much am I going to include in here? And I was thinking that it was open in that fall, summer, fall of 2016, when Trump was like looking increasingly like he was going to be the Republican nominee and the Access Hollywood tape and all that other stuff was happening. And so it would come at the end of what to many liberals at the time felt was like a very late period and the Ameri- the project of American democracy and happiness after Obama, the sort of like very lateness of it. But as far as not including too much in it, I think at the time when I was writing it, I just had no faith that I could do that. I didn't know how to include that sort of thing in the book. And I didn't know how to do it in a way that wasn't going to let Trump totalize a novel because there are a lot of novels in 2017, 2018 that are not very good because they are so deranged by Trump. (laughs) Truly, like those books are unreadable. And I was like, I don't want to do that. That's so gross. And I hadn't yet mastered how to include politics in in the novel in quite that way. So he is a miasma lurking over. He's on the horizon. 
and becoming more of a certainty as the book goes on. And as far as the the title, I, Henry James is one of my favorite writers, and he has all the best titles, the Europeans, the American. He has these brilliant titles, and I was like, I want to write a Henry Jamesian title, but he already has all the bad best ones. And I was like, I can't do the can't do the Americans, but I can do I can do like the late Americans because I want this book to be this panorama of like my generation who feel that they have come too late to partake in the the prosperity and for and frankly the illusions of the Pax Americana, right? And and that we do feel that we are arriving at the end of something. And actually I did, had an interview with someone at Maison La Poésie in Paris yesterday and she asked me, are these also not the first Americans? And I thought, well, yes. And it, it clicked something into place for me, which is that for many people on the right, people like me and my generation, we do represent the last Americans of the sort of like the dead end of the sort of great American prosperity that the sort of dead end of all of our values as a country. And in a sense, we are perhaps the beginning of a new kind of America. Hopefully, optimistically, we are the beginning of a new kind of American sensibility and a new American presence on the global stage that is perhaps more articulate on matters of actual justice and, and equity and equal rights. And that, yeah, we do represent a, a kind of cultural dead end for America, but I think like a necessary dead end to a lot of the sort of imperialist, horrible logic that we've lived through. And so I liked that idea. And in that way, the French title maybe does take in a tongue in cheek way this accusation from the right in America that we are, in fact, the last Americans. I think many people of my generation would agree that it's a good, <laughs> good. <laughs> we can do something better now. Um, yeah. And you, and you see this rhetoric all the time where people say, oh, you, you leftists, you just want to tear up the Constitution. And many of us are like, yes, it's really bad. <laughs> Even the French rewrote theirs so many times. Maybe we should. We keep amending it to update it to say, okay, this kind of people is now also can be treated as a people. Maybe we just need to restart the document. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I love that the French title kind of literalizes and plays with that idea that my generation is the last of, of a people, but hopefully the beginning of something much better. That feels like the perfect place on which to leave it. The Late Americans is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company, from our bricks and mortar store, from our online store, or from your local independent bookstore, wherever you may be in the world. Um, Brandon Taylor, all that remains for you to say is thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album, Play It Gentle, is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.